Welcome to the Recovery Lab podcast series. My name is Daniel Anderson. I'm joined here by Autumn Pape. Say hi, Autumn. Hi. <laughs> All right, cool. Thank you guys for uh, joining us. Uh, just uh, we're going to dump into a little bit of business work here. Just remember, um, we have our uh, wonderful new website that you can check out. It's recoverylabllc.com. Um, on that website, you can purchase all of our uh, hoodies, which I say it every week. Um, I take a shower personally in my hoodie. Um, that's how much I think that they're wonderful. Um, and I wish it were. I wish that were a joke. I really do. Uh, I'm an interesting individual. Uh, no, but seriously, uh, we also have a bunch of other things that you can purchase on the Recovery Lab. All of that money goes right back into the podcast and. Uh, into us being able to normalize recovery with our conversations. Um, and as always, we're unbelievably grateful uh, for everyone that has uh, reached out and supported us up to this point. Um, oh, and today is uh, episode 26. I can't uh, forget about that. We also have uh, Patreon. If you'd like to support us uh, that way, uh, you can have access. Uh, I think it's like five bucks a month. You can have access to uh, content that nobody else gets access to. We have uh behind the scenes. We have all sorts of interesting things. Uh, and if you just want to hang out and not uh, support us financially, that's okay too, uh, because we are here to normalize recovery. Uh, I, 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 don't, I, I can't say that enough. We want to make it to where it's completely normal to, be, to, to not drink and use drugs. And, and that, that is our goal. So if you want to support us, great. If not, great. It's, it doesn't matter. We're just happy that you're here, and, and um, we just we we ask that you you can um, you can comment on the live stream if you'd like. Um, we love your comments, um, and just engage. Um, all right, cool. I think we. Oh, also, I can't I cannot go without saying. Um, let me hit record there. Um, we are uh, talking with uh, Recovery for America now. It's a foundation. Um, they, what they do is they, um, they fundraise for funds for people that are in need of long-term treatment to be able to gain, uh, access to that, uh, long-term treatment if they do not have, uh, the funds available right now. Uh, they're doing great work. Dr. Drew Pinsky is on their board of advisors. Uh, Dr. Drew from Love Lines back in the nineties, uh, or Love Line rather. Um, so if, uh, if you want to donate to them, uh, you can check them out at recovery for America now. Uh, I'm sorry, recoveryforamerica.org, uh, and you can donate there. You can uh, research them and, and get with them and um, and help them out as well. They're doing doing really, really great work, and uh, we're excited to uh, join forces with them and, and uh, try to help them with their, their awesome cause. So, all right, enough of the business. Uh, without further ado, um, this young lady has been, every time that I hear her speak in a meeting, um, my ears poke up. Um, I'm immediately um, engaged in what she's saying, even though I'm driving the, the vast majority of the time. Um, and, and it was just a natural, it was a natural, um, I, I had to get you on the podcast and I'm, and I, and I know very little about you other than what I've heard in meetings, which it, it's blown my mind how strong, how incredibly strong-willed you are, and how devoted you are to your recovery. So without further ado, we're going to do a little speak, uh, speak and uh, question type of uh, 
format today. So for the first 30 minutes, if you would, just kind of walk us through what sobriety has looked like for you, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. I know you've been you've been sober for years and years and years and years and years. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, this is going to be a great opportunity for folks to listen, sit down, take a seat, listen to what it's like to live in sobriety. So without further ado, Cal Grant, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Hey, hey, good <laughs> evening. I am Cal Grant. I am an alcoholic and addict in recovery. And uh, all of a sudden I got nervous and I'm not <laughs> sure why that is. This is my story and I'm just going to say it the way I remember it and the way I live it today, right? Absolutely. Um, and I, I want to start by saying I, I love what you just said about normalizing recovery. Um, I have been sober since March 25th of 1990. Um, so I'm going to save some people some math, math and calculation. If you start trying to do this, I was 23 when I got sober. Um, and I have been really fortunate to be openly sober, pretty much wide open and sober since I first sat down in, in a 12 step meeting. Um, my, my philosophy has been, if I was willing to sit and pretty openly sell drugs from my desk at work as a young accountant. I should probably be willing to be openly sober from my desk as an older accountant and older lawyer. And so I've been really lucky and blessed to be able to be that way and sort of put my stake in the ground that we should be willing to talk about it. Um, so again, sober since March 25th of 1990. And I tend to be long-winded, which uh, I've already made clear to Daniel, and Autumn <laughs> knows that about me as well. So if I start talking at like the two-hour mark, you know, you guys start jumping up and down. No, I sure will not, because I want to hear every yeah. last word of what you have to say. <laughs> I think that almost every story in AA starts with somebody saying that um, I grew up in a family where it was weird and I felt like something was missing. Um, and I remember telling that to my daughter when she was in high school and she was first starting to deal with some of the issues that high school kids deal with. And I dragged her to some meetings and I said, listen, every person is going to start their story with almost every person is going to start their story with. I felt weird. I felt different. I didn't understand. Right. Um, and I, so I came from a family, like a lot of people in AA that was dysfunctional. And uh, some are more dysfunctional than others. And it took me some years to figure out that it was super dysfunctional. Um, and, and that required a lot of work in sobriety. Um, what I know came from that now was something it talks about in our literature. You know, one of the things that is said, I think, believe in the big book about the Holy Synonymous is that deep down inside every man, woman, and child is a fundamental belief in a higher power. I can't sit here and say that as a youngster, I had a, I knew that there was somehow inside of me a fundamental belief in a higher power, but I sure as hell knew something was missing. Right. I just felt like there was something that wasn't triggering and I looked everywhere. I joined the $6 million man fan club. I wrote letters to the president. I joined the Smokey the Bear Junior Forest <laughs> Rangers. I wrote letters to authors. I joined clubs. At one point, I created a shrine in my room with like a Bible and candles. And I sat and waited for something or someone to show up and say, I get it. I get you. I'm here to help you. Um, you are not alone. 
you are not alone because I felt so, so, so terribly alone. And as though I just couldn't figure out what the point was. And so it's not very surprising at age 15 or 16, when somebody handed me my first drink that I, you know, slugged it down, reached for another and thought, oh, (laughs) there it is, right? right? There is the thing that I'm going to be able to do that's going to make make me not feel alone. I can find some friends. I can buy some friends. By the way, sharing your drugs is a great way to make friends. Um, I can get, uh, I heard this in a song once, I can have evenings full of uh, half an hour friendships till the cows come home. Um, You know, but at 15 or 16, I just knew that I had found the thing that was going to make my life bearable. And um, and I've heard people say the first the first step by saying, you know, I was powerless over alcohol and my life was unbearable. And life was unbearable until alcohol saved my life because I was suicidal already as a teenager. And alcohol kept me from killing myself. Um, and I it lived served a very classic. Yeah, I, I, you know, it, it saved me. And and I got down to college, went as far away from home as I could get. Um, already a blackout alcoholic, already somebody who woke up in the middle of the night with, you know, vomit beside me, already somebody that wasn't sure what happened the night before, Um, already somebody who could be at a dinner party with, you know, the first real drunk, like 12 people at a big dinner party and somebody saying, oh my God, she's going to blow and dragging me out into the front yard, throwing up, making them look for my contact lenses in the grass. (laughs) Um, discovering they're in my eyes, waking out, passed out in a bed, still in those clothes and truly wanting to do it again. Um, So I came down to college. I went to SMU in the eighties. That's probably all you kind of need to say there. (laughs) Um, Ecstasy was legal. Wow. Um, And I think just importantly for my story, I was a full ride scholarship kid in a school full of what felt like really wealthy people who had figured out how to live life. And I didn't, and I didn't know how, and I couldn't figure it out. And so I drank and I did a lot of drugs and I drank some more and I filled the hole in me with anything that I could find because I just needed that friend and alcohol uh, and cocaine and ecstasy and anything else I could get my hand on. Those were my best friends. They never let me down. You know, they showed up for me when I rolled over in the morning and couldn't remember what happened the night before they were still there, you know? And, um, and I found the people that would do it with me. Right. the only problem with finding the people that would do it with me, and of course, college is filled with lots of glamorous and not so glamorous stories, um, and lots of not not glamorous stories, um, and moments that I still uh, I still cringe when I drive around Dallas. Uh, at one point in college, on a night, we actually broke into the Adam Hat factory and climbed up and sat on top of the water tower, oh and god. you can still drive by that factory. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, glamorous stories and not so glamorous stories and nights where I sat in my dorm room, the razor blade against my wrist, you know, wanting to be brave enough to do it. Um, 
ignoring friends when they called me because their boyfriends were pounding on the door, threatening to come in and kill them. And I was too busy doing my party, you know? And what happens with that kind of life where I'm slogging through water knee deep all the time and, and the, really the only person I have time for is me. And the only thing I'm living for is the next moment of release. The next time my brain can kind of exhale a little bit um, the next time drugs and alcohol help my give a shitter stop giving a shit. <laughs> I hope I can say that here. You can say whatever um, the fuck you want. Yeah. Is the, uh, thank you. <laughs> is the, uh, the quality of friends that, that, uh, that I had started to steeply decline by the end of my, you know, by the time I was a year out of college, right. you know, you're, I'd be at a party at two in the morning and looking around at these people thinking, Oh, what the fuck? <laughs> these are not people I would hang with, you know, in real life. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the sun's coming up. I need to get home. Yeah. Now that you and can see people, these, it's, uh, <laughs> it's like, Oh, my, yeah, yeah, oh yeah. hello. You know, <laughs> and doing the walk of shame back to the apartment and, and hoping nobody calls you. Um, that you just met, but I really liked them in the moment, you know, at midnight <laughs> right. and by three in the morning, um, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I'm hoping they didn't follow me home and know where I live. And, and I'm standing alone in my apartment, looking out of the blinds in the village in Dallas, you know, watching cars go by, hoping that somebody stops by because I am so, so, so lonely. Right. Um, and so afraid someone will stop you know, and, and there's a chance they're going to see what's really happening inside of me. Um, and, and I probably could have kept going a while like that until I got brave enough to, to do it, to, to, to go the last step. And I did have a suicide attempt in December of 1990. I downed about 60 Valium and, uh, and, um, and Autumn has heard this story Um, I downed about 60 Valium and I had a moment, I had a God moment. I had a real, real deep God says it's not time yet moment. And I decided to tell a friend goodbye. And that's what I told myself I was doing. I wouldn't admit I was asking for help. He was a reservations agent with American Airlines. And I like to joke in meetings for the young people back in the old days, you had to call a 1-800 number <laughs> to, to make reservations. Right. <laughs> um, and he didn't have a direct line. He was a reservations agent at a 1-800 number. And I called that number and said, I needed to talk to my friend David to say goodbye. And the reservations agents of American Airlines tracked that guy down and got a hold of him and got him on the phone. And he sent the police to my apartment to get me and take me to get my stomach pumped. Holy shit. Um, I mean, talk about a miracle of all the people working for American Airlines. <laughs> and about three months after that, um, there was a young woman who went to my home group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she was in the, the pink cloud of early sobriety where everybody, you know, needs to get sober. Right. And, uh, and most people she didn't know probably needed to get sober. <laughs> and she decided that I needed to get sober. And so we were going to do an intervention. They were going to do an intervention. And in another one of those weird, amazing, you know, uh, recovery-related moment, she decided she needed to get a hold of my brother, who had gotten sober at 18 and lived up in Minnesota. And uh, back then, kids, we didn't have the internet again, so she had to try to find him in a phone book. And my family at the time didn't believe in being listed, so she started calling AA group in St. Paul, Minnesota, 
looking for a guy named Scott who had a sister named Cal who lived in Dallas because she was in trouble and she needed help. And it took the good people of St. Paul 24 hours again to find him and get him in touch with her and, uh, and arrange for my intervention. And so the family came in and they, uh, they swept me off to the intervention. And as I say, every time I tell this story, when the people you are selling drugs to arrange for your (laughs) intervention, you have a problem. (laughs) So it was my family and a number of my good customers. (laughs) <laughs> and a couple of friends who arranged for my intervention wow. um and uh and i smoked about a half a pack of menthol cigarettes and uh and the, and everybody went around to take a turn about you know what they wanted or what they felt and they kept saying i was going to get a turn which by the way i did not and uh and my dad started crying and said i just want a chance to start over and he and i had had a rocky relationship um and he said i've made so many mistakes i just want to start over and it was that small window that opened for me and um and i still i wear his wedding ring every day along with an aa ring um and one of the reasons i wear that is it reminds me of that moment um when he said that and the, and the window would open for me and so i agreed to go to a 10 day for a 10 day program <laughs> which doesn't exist right and uh, and I went off to a ten day uh, for ten days to a treatment center. At the end of which, um, while I was there, I heard a couple of stories, and and there were a couple of stories that that made sense. There were a couple of my almost yet, my not quite there, but it could have been these. Um, and so at the end of ten days, um, I walked out and went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous um and stayed and stayed i did not um i did not start working the program right away um i stayed by virtue of sheer white knuckled white knuckled <laughs> willfulness right i mean i was hanging on to that chip and hanging on to my chair and smoking up you know, a pack of Marble Light 100s. God, I miss smoking. Smoking a pack of Marble Light 100s um, and sitting in smoky meetings to prove I didn't have to drink um, and saying whatever I thought people wanted to hear. And um, and about after about two months of being so horribly alone, but not being able to use alcohol or drugs after two months of my way just is not fucking working. Um, I finally had that moment and I had a stupid fight with a roommate about something stupid. And I had the moment of clarity that it doesn't have to be this way because I knew my way wasn't fucking working for a long time. But what I didn't know was it doesn't have to be this way for me. I knew maybe it didn't have to be this way for you, but I didn't understand that it doesn't have to be this way for me. And I I tell sponsees sometimes the first three steps are my way isn't fucking working. You know, these people seem to have a better plan. And the third step is I think I'll give it a shot. You know, and so I got down on my knees in a Blockbuster bathroom in my little khakis, Blockbuster for the young Blockbuster, people. Blockbuster, yes. Store. That was my first out of treatment job. That was my second job. job. <laughs> yeah, I was working two full-time jobs to, you know, 
afford my habits along with my outside entrepreneurial activities. Sure, of course, of course. Um, I got down on, in a blockbuster bathroom on, in my khakis and asked God for help. And that, that really was the moment where I got sober. I was dry and I, and I used my dry date as my sobriety date, but I didn't, really? I didn't accept that there was another way for me. Right. And really what that was, was hope, right? I mean, that's really what it was. I let hope in for the first time. I, I believed that my life could be better, could actually be better. So how long were you, how long after not having any substances in your system until you actually reached that, uh, that, that relief that you're speaking of at the blockbuster? Oh my God, I am a stubborn, stubborn <laughs> woman. It was, it was two months. It two was months. two full months. Okay. Yep. Okay. Two full months. I mean, I went to meetings. I went to two meetings a day. I showed up. I kept, I mean, I was white knuckling it. Um, I kept going to meetings because it was the only place I felt safe. Right. White knuckling it through for an hour at a time. I knew I was doing the right thing and I was in the right place. Right. And I was, I was not as alone. So I would sit in my chair and spout something, 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 but at that point in life, I felt so desperate and so lost. And here was a group of people that said, the next right thing for you to do is go to a meeting. And I really think that that's, that was the start of me understanding that the most important thing I could do. And I still think one of the most important things I can do is go to meetings. And in 32 years and 10 months of sobriety, I there's been fewer than 10 times that I've gone more than a week without a meeting. I show up and I sit down and I do my best to sit down all the way. Um, And for me to sit down all the way means I got to show up real to the best of my ability. I got to show up and tell you what's really going on. And it took me eight years to learn that. I know exactly how long it took me because it was 1998 and I was going through a divorce. You know, those first few years of sobriety um, are that everything starts going right, right? I mean, you take the drugs and the alcohol, you stop selling drugs, (laughs) take the alcohol out of the picture, you know, you kind of get your life going. And and in the beginning, all this stuff kind of falls away, right? I mean, a lot of the big problems kind of fall away. You meet some kind of weird, but nice people to hang out with. And, um, and everything, you know, I got a scholarship to law school. I went off to law school. I met a boy. He was also sober. We get married. We're working at the two biggest firms in, um, in the city we're living in. And, uh, and we're, we buy the house of our dreams. I mean, it might as well have had a white big events, right? Um, and we're rocked along. And then the cracks start showing up. We had infertility. I had a miscarriage. He turned off the TV in the middle of the night one night and said, I don't want to be married. And piece at a time, all that stuff that I thought meant that I, God and I, all that stuff that I thought meant, well, clearly I'm working a good program. Clearly I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I mean, God is shining the light, you know, white prosperity and, you know, uh, cash and prizes. As our friend Russell uh, B likes to say, cash and prizes. And it fell away fast and hard. And I discovered that my faith 
was based on the fact that everything was going my way. And in 1998, I was sitting on the steps of my house, um, which I was about to sell because I had to move out. My dream house that I thought was going to be my house um, forever with my kids and my husband. Um, and I was screaming at God, this isn't right. You cannot do this to me. You cannot do this to me. And I was ready to go upstairs and lay down and be done. I really was. But two things happened. One, I looked down at my dogs and I thought, who's going to find my dogs? And then somewhere in the back of my head, my, my mother said, you better clean the house first, <laughs> you know? And I looked over at the kitchen counter and my eyes fell on my address book and it was sitting on the kitchen counter. Um, you know, cause back in the day, kids, we had paper. Address <laughs> um, and I, and I, for real, I opened up my address book and I turned to the letter a and I started calling people wow. and I called people and I called B and I called C and I called D and I cried and I cried and I said, help me. It took eight years in this program for me to pick up a phone and say, fucking help me. Right. Cause I can't live right now. I'm coming out of my skin. I don't know how to do this. Um, everything's not going my way anymore. And I went to a meeting and for the first time sat in the back of the meeting and cried and cried and cried and cried. And there's nothing quite as fun as going through a divorce when your husband is also in the program. Uh. Um, but I reached out for help. And when the day came to move out of my house, um, I was swarms with people. People showed up and packed my shit. I had a girlfriend who stood in my dining room and packed my crystal for two days. It took me three years to discover she'd done it. The guys that worked in the copy room of my law firm knocked on my office door and said, we heard you're in trouble. Can we help you? And they, these kids who made copies for the law firm showed up and packed boxes. Wow. And, um, and they packed me up and carried me. Um, and that's where I really, that's where I really started to figure out that for me, what my higher power promises me is not that shit's going to go my way. Not that there's some great big plan where nothing happens by mistake. Not that there's this, um, the next right thing is some magical next step. What God has promised me is that when life gets lifey, when shit hits the fan, because it's life that I am not going to be alone. That kid that was sitting in my house growing up, you know, making shrines and writing to presidents and celebrities and um, anybody I could think of to ask for help. That kid, you know, was finally able to sit down and know I'm not alone. And what God promises me is that when life is lifey, I will have people. And for me, I will have laughter. Because that's just a big part of who I am that also came from my dad. Um, and that when I ask for help, it will be there. And of course, asking for help, like I think every sober person, it's a journey. Um, you know, it's it's been a long road of learning how to ask for help um, and accept help and say I'm not okay. Um, and I have to learn it regularly um, as as I've gone through. But that's how I know exactly when when I reached that point, because it took the depths of that loss of losing a baby and losing a house and losing a husband to figure out 
what my faith faith needed to be based on, you know. And so I packed up my toys and moved home to Dallas, <laughs> you know, back uh, and you know, and started to and started to live my life. And um, and I discovered that um, I discovered that I needed women. That's also when I discovered I needed a really core group of women. Um, I needed people that I could carry and that could carry me and that would surround and keep me safe um, and take care of me and that I could be part of the group. Uh, We're talking a lot in in meetings about first steps lately and the first tradition um, and what it means to be part of a group. And I've had a really long journey of knowing what it means to be right-sized. And knowing what it means to uh, uh, not dominate or be dependent on other people. And, and in 6 and 7 and the 12 and 12, one of our Alcoholics Anonymous books is our 12 and 12 book that takes you through the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. Um, in step 6 and 7, it, it specifically talks about, the, it talks about the character defects that we have that are messing with our relationships with other people. What six and seven for me are, are, are the work that I do. So I quit hurting myself by fucking up my relationships. Mm-hmm. How do I keep getting in there and dragging my habits and biases and ego into a place where I hurt other people and I hurt me. And, and one of the places that I, that I do that, or one of the ways that I do that is I either dominate, which love to do like a lot of people in my profession but also just because i'm an alcoholic dominate or be dependent you know one of the two and um and i had to learn how to be part of a group of sober mature most of the time people uh friends where we just showed up and nobody was more important than anybody else right um and uh i when I was back in Dallas and attending my group, I went on a date with somebody from my group and I was sexually assaulted on the date by that person, Ugh. by that man. And you know what I did? I opened up my address book and I started calling the women and I started at A and I started at B and then I called C and I cried and I said, I can't live in my own skin. What am I supposed to do? And because I had done the work of, of learning how to be part of a group because I had tried to figure out how to be part of something bigger. I had a group of girlfriends who, you know, showed up and surrounded me and kept me safe and told me it was going to be okay. And, um, and I refused to give up my own group, even though he was there. And I just let them sort of create a cushion around me of safety um, so that I could keep going there. Cause I was like, fuck you. I am not giving up this group. Right. You know what? I did sort of give them the evil eye when we got to four step and nine steps sometimes. Jesus um, <laughs> you know, um, and then when I, you know, and those were the same women that were with me when I adopted my daughter. Um, I was 10 or 11 years sober and I adopted my daughter and, um, and uh, there were 12 people at the hospital with me to pick her up. Wow. She was a two-day-old infant. And um, they came. To, we had a wedding the night before. One of them got married. And the next day, we all went to the hospital. And, um, you know, I was told my friends were too loud. I said, that's what we do. Right. <laughs> it's 
and I was in the nursery, you know, waiting. I, like they're giving you instructions on how much to feed the baby and all this. And um, and they're banging on the window. Give her the baby. Give her the baby. <laughs> give her the baby. <laughs> and uh, and they and we went back to the house and they sat me in a chair and filled me up with love and, you know, sort of drove away and left me there with my baby. Um, and she went to her first meeting when she was 10 days old. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh um, and so, you know, I figured it, I, I, I raised an AA baby to the best of my ability <laughs> and she is, she's on her journey right now, but I hope I have done for her the same thing that was done for me by a brother who got sober to 18. Shout out to my brother. who has got, I think 42 years now. Wow. Um, when he got sober at 18, what he showed me was that AA is full of regular people who pull together to, um, to support each other. And I could see that through whatever small window of clarity I had. I was 14 and he was 18 when he got sober. Um, but what I hope I have done for my kid and for other people that I meet, along the way now is I give them a glimpse into the fact that just like, I love what you said at the beginning, um, Alcoholics Anonymous is full of regular people who are doing their best to stay sober and help others to recover from alcoholism. That's our primary purpose. And being an AA has given me what I needed when I was looking for that shrine, I was building that shrine and I was writing those letters and I was clinging on dependent on people and things and trying to figure out how to not be alone and how to fill the, what I now understand it was to find that deep down inside fundamental belief, you know, that, that now I have a primary purpose. And, uh, you know, before I came down to this job I had down here, um, we were in one of the last interviews uh, where we were talking to each other about whether or not I was going to take the job. And, you know, that question always comes, is there anything that's not on your resume? I've interviewed people. I use that question too. <laughs> right. And right. I said, so here's the thing. And this is a couple of years ago. I said, here's the thing. I'm 30 years sober. And AA is always going to be first. And um, I'm going to get calls at weird times and I'm going to take the call and you're going to grit your teeth and be mad. And, um, and I'm going to run out the door for a meeting because frankly, you're going to be driving me crazy and I need to be with my people. Um, and so it's my primary purpose. You're not going to be my primary purpose. There's going to be a higher power and AA and family, and you guys are going to be down here somewhere. And so I don't want you to be surprised or, you know, you didn't tell me before I came here because it's just part of who I am. Um, and you know, I am far from a poster child for AA, um, but I have stayed sober, you know, and I have fucking gone to meetings. Keep showing up. Keep sitting down. And in 20, um, 2018, I went through a really, really dark time with a job I had at the time. And I went through a really dark time because the job sucked and because I had let myself get caught up in the prestige of the job and the shit I could buy and the shininess of it all. 
And I went to my one meeting a week and I kind of shared and I said stuff I said that I always say that I say, you know, and I went home um, and I, you know, the next week I showed up and I sank deeper and deeper and deeper down um, until the thought would come in the back of my head not to take a drink, but that maybe, you know, my child would be better off without me. And I woke up one day with that God moment of clarity, that window in the back of my head that said, you need to get your ass back to a meeting. And I went back to a meeting and I sat in the back at a six o'clock meeting in my home group and cried. And I went back the next night and I went back the next night and I went back the next night and I sat there. And when people were sharing, um, and I heard you talk about this uh, before, Daniel, and, and I've said the same thing as well. When people are sharing, I try to sit up and look them in the eye right. and really listen. Uh, for this ADHD kid, um, for me, sitting in a meeting, paying attention when somebody's talking is a form of meditation. It's sometimes the best I can do um at meditation it is often the best I can do so I went back to my home group and I went every day and after a couple of weeks I was walking out of the meeting um you know fragile but there and this woman chased me out of the meeting into the parking lot and across the street and she said will you be my I need us I have to have a sponsor will you be my sponsor will you be my sponsor and I looked up like okay I understand. <laughs> I don't think this picture could be any clearer <laughs> what I'm supposed to be doing right now. And, you know, one of the many graces of AA is that AA says we're still here. When you're ready to come back in and sit all the way down to the fucking chair, we are here. We're here waiting. And you open right back up and we're going to act like you never left. Um, and you can fill your soul up again and not be alone um, and let us love you. Um, and that group again saved my life. And I just dove back in, I dove back into meeting every day, every day and sponsoring people and you know, moving the chairs back after a speaker night and actually hanging around talking to people, not running out because I'm so important and I have a big job. Instead of running out the door for that, I stayed around to talk to people. Um, and I got another, I got a sponsee not too long after that first one, when at the end of a six o'clock meeting, uh, somebody dragged a woman over to me that had come in still drunk and said, she needs a sponsor. I told her to talk to Cal, here you go. You know, and we sat out in front of the group and talked and I needed it. Right. I needed every one of those sponsees. Um, and Zoom hit and here we are, right? And I thought, I, yeah, I guess that's, you know, now that I've chatted and chatted for 40 minutes. No, um, you're good. You're good. I, one of the things that I was so mad when COVID hit for so many reasons, primarily, as you can probably tell, I'm an extrovert. Through and through on the Myers Briggs test, uh, I am a perfect extrovert. But I was supposed to have my 30th sobriety birthday in March of 2020, oh, the last Sunday of March. And I had worked myself for this. It's my 30th birthday. I am big shit, right? I am big <laughs> shit. Birthday night. And two weeks before birthday night, COVID hits. Right. And, uh, and you know, and, and you just sort of, what are you going to do? I looked up and I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> right. 
you know, and somewhere that window opens up after I say it out loud in a meeting about 10 times, somewhere the window will opens up and, and I realize, okay, maybe it's not all about my birthday. Um, maybe, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I moved down here and, um, to San Antonio and COVID let me stay with my home group. COVID let me check in two, three times a day. Um, and to see the people that I love. Well, I found people here to hang out with. Um, I, I got to stay in touch and keep my feet planted where I got sober. My home group is the same home group I've had since I got sober. Um, and they know me. And uh, in my first few few weeks of sobriety, well, let's be real, after that two-month point, and uh, when I got when I came in, um, there's somebody that still goes to Preston that helped me move out of the, out of my drunk apartment with my drunk roommates and into a sober apartment. He showed up at 630 in the morning to help me move. And he still comes to Preston and I still see him. His name's Hank. And uh, every time I see him, I remember who I was when I needed help moving out of my drunk apartment. Right. And I didn't want to lose lose the group. You know, and and COVID took away my big 30th birthday hoo-ha, but gave me a way to keep in touch with the people that sustain me Um, and remember me and don't let me pretend I had a high bottom drug because I didn't have DWIs. I didn't get arrested. I didn't bounce check. But make no mistake, stomach pumped, pulled out my own IV to catch a cab. (laughs) Um, I was not a high bottom. I was a suicidal mess right. um, that didn't have a lot of consequence, but I was slogging through water knee deep and I cannot forget that. And I don't ever want to get so far away from my group or the people that remember me or my memories of what it's like that I forget that. Right. Yeah. And that's my daughter behind me yelling at the cat. So. <laughs> that's <awesome. laughs> Outside my door. <laughs> That's awesome. What an, what an incredible story. Um, I, I just, there were, there were numerous times in your story where you mentioned how women in the program showed up where they showed up. Will you help? And and it's the same with men don't get me wrong. There's, you know, men show up for each other all the time and it's a beautiful thing. But for, for the for the female listener that's that's listening right now or that will listen to this down the line on the pod, uh, via podcast, if you would, because you and Autumn are both like very outgoing individuals, mm-hmm. you you both seem to me as somebody who uh, or people individuals who will will be there, will show up. If you would, Autumn, would you please talk a little bit about, what that looks like, what that relationship that you gain in AA, in the 12 step program, rather, um, what that looks like for you guys personally, coming from a female's perspective. How important Absolutely. is that, that, that camaraderie, that fellowship that you find within the 12 steps? It is, it is extremely important. And, you know, I was. I was fortunate that I actually came into the program with friends. And I remember my first sponsor telling me, you need to make, you need to make friends. And I was like, I already have friends. And she was like, you need to make female friends. You need to make girlfriends and they need to be sober. And I was like, whatever. And so she tricked me. She tricked me into making friends because she would drag me along 
with her to all these events that she did. And sure enough, I looked up and I was like, holy shit, I have girlfriends. <laughs> right. You know, and I will say, you know, um, Cal helped me out and is still helping me out in a situation that I'm going through, a personal situation. And I remember when my sponsor was um, out of, she was out of pocket for a little bit. And um, so I kind of used Cal as like a pseudo sponsor. And there was one day where I was like, you know, I know I should go to work, but I really, really want to go to a meeting. And we went back and forth and she was like, go to the meeting. And, you know, I mean, I just want to say thank you publicly to her for that, because it's just, you know, going, walking into Preston or, you know, anybody walking into a home group, just seeing people, that human connection right. is so important. And I'm actually very, um, you know, I'm a homebody. I love to stay home. Right. And, but, you know, after about five days or five, <laughs> yeah. exactly. <laughs> so I was like coming out of my skin. And so I was texting with Cal. She was like, go to the meeting. And after that meeting, I told her, I was like, thank you. I mean, that is absolutely what I needed. And, you know, I mean, I love Cal very much. And the thing, um, you know, from your story, there's a couple things that I've taken away is one, um, we still have fun. You exactly. know, I love that story. Exactly. I love that story. <laughs> you talk about picking up Izzy. And how <laughs> you guys were being too loud. I mean, leave it to a <laughs> unruly and loud and obnoxious, you know, bring the baby, give her the baby. You know, you <laughs> and I guess in a sense, we kind of are insane. But, but when we There's a lot of truth to that. You know, it's like that insanity turns into something good. Right. You know, it's like a celebration. And I love how you how you talked about you picked up the phone by the way i do know what a phone book is an address. <laughs> <laughs> i love that you know that you do that that you did that because that's what this program is about it's mm -hmm. about fellowship it's about um we are there for each other you know cal's right. been there for me many many times when i've been like i hate this program i hate my life and it's like no no you know, it's, um, you know, it's just amazing at what our higher powers can do. And it's, it's amazing at what our higher powers can show us why we're here, you know, why right. Cal didn't off herself, you know, cool. because then she couldn't carry this message of hope. And, you know, I love the story too, how you told, you know, that big fancy law firm that, you know, sobriety is my number one priority you yeah. know when i heard you say that i was like holy shit that woman has balls <laughs> <laughs> that, that, like that, but it is but it, it is amazing and i'm like yeah. wow because it is important you know it is very important i don't know if i could do that <laughs> but you know when i heard that i mean it was like i got chills i was like that right there is what i want yeah. you know i want that yeah. And, you know, I'm just so honored to, to have such a sweet and loving friend as Cal. So yeah. I love you. Love you. <laughs> it's Goodbye. so beautiful. I mean, it's, it is like 
There's, and, and I've, you know, I've been, I'm 38 now. I, my first meeting when I was, was when I was 18. So I've been, you know, at this for a, a little while. Um, and, you know, this is the first time that I've really sat down. You mentioned it so many times in your meeting, the importance of sitting down. And I never really understood. First of all, also, I'm, uh, I'm adopted. So the fact that you adopted just makes me love you even more. Um, but the, the fact that I, I was I was finally, I tried every other route. I tried to just do, you know, smoke a little bit of weed, do a little this, just do this, just do that, like the book talks about. And, and I was completely unsuccessful, and, and I was miserable. And it wasn't until, like you said, I sat down fully in recovery. And what does that look like? Getting in, for me, that looks like getting involved, Um Showing up, getting to getting to meetings early, making coffee. Um, we don't clean out ashtrays anymore, but that I, from what I heard, that was a thing we did back in the past, mm-hmm. uh, back in the day. Um, but just just getting involved and making yourself available to to help someone else, and it's a common theme throughout your entire story. Is mm-hmm. you sat down, and it was when you sat down that you realized and 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 came into this wonderful gift of being comfortable in your own skin. Um, and, and it's just that for, for anyone listening, it's just, it's, it's so incredibly important that you come in and you sit down fully. You just, you just yeah. sit down and you, you, you continue to come back. And, and that's another thing that you said, you, you stressed it, that you come back, you come back. Even when you had some, awful shit happened with somebody in your home group that wasn't enough to break that bond, which to me, where else does that exist in this world? Right? Where else does that kind of bond with, with other people exist? It just, it just doesn't exist anywhere else. I mean, it's um, to your, to your point though, Daniel, I think, I think the question you asked earlier about women friends, and women friends and and finding that companionship what what worked in sitting down and finding that companionship is in a in in a we find out we don't have to be shiny we find out we don't have to look like we have our shit together we sit down and we talk about our struggles and we talk about what's really going on Right. and what I'm unhappy about and how I got my feelings hurt. And, and that's the other way of fully sitting down is saying, I'm not perfect. I don't have it figured out. Here's kind of what I think, but I reserve the right tomorrow to change my mind right. and tell you something different. And I didn't know how to have female friends until I figured out how to not be shiny. That's and not, so important. Not, yeah. Oh my God. Like I got to look like I've got it together because I don't have it together. I'm trying. And right. I, and my other campaign along with, um, for better or worse, along with normalizing addiction is even out amongst, amongst the English, as they said back in Harrison Ford's movie witness out amongst the English is just talk about it from the early days of my pantyhose ran today. Uh, <laughs> which was a moment in early sobriety where the, the woman that I looked up to like most in the firm was in the bathroom and I, she's making weird noises and you're trying not to, you know, and then she says she ran her pantyhose and I'm thinking, Oh my God, that happens to me to sitting in a meeting talking about my fears right. and my failures 
and, and finding out that that's what the bond is. And to your point about all of us wanting everyone else to be successful, we're all pulling together. Right. And I don't know where else you find an organization. We joke about it all the time, right? Where everybody wants everyone else to be successful. Right. I mean, right. You come in and you say, I'm fucked up and everyone cheers for you. I mean, really. You know, it makes yeah. us feel not alone. And right. just that, well, there you go. And we're not alone. And because you're willing to say, oh, I felt that too. I am suddenly less alone. Right. All that guilt and just shit. like that. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Daniel, you mentioned you're adopted. I'm adopted yeah. too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, oh that's right. Yeah, I remember that. Talking about her adopting a daughter. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, oh, and that warms my heart. And her daughter is a different race. I was I I was raised by white people. Yeah. You know, yeah. my last name, Poppy. Hello. That's not Asian at all. I'm the only <laughs> Asian in my immediate family. Right. Everybody else is white. Right. You know, Cal's daughter is black. You know, and it's so cool that, you know, I always felt like I'm alone. Everyone's staring at me. Everyone's pointing and laughing and making fun of me. Right. And, you know, hearing that, you know, Cal has, Cal adopted a daughter. You know, I was like, really? She did? You know, this this is what I'm doing in the program. And I was like, that's really cool. Hearing that you are, you know, it's like, oh, wow. And it's, it's okay where we can be vulnerable, where we're not going to be made fun of, where it's going to be like you too, you know, it's just, I mean, this is an amazing program and it's, I don't know where else, you know, it's like, we're all on the same team. We all want everybody to win. And, you know, it's funny, you may not even like me, right? But, you know, I know that if, if I called anyone <laughs> in the group, even if they didn't like me personally, they would show and I needed up. Absolutely. Group, they would show up. They would show up. You know, and that's the cool thing about this program is that we're all in this together. Right. And I learned, so Autumn talks about and talked in meetings about what it felt like to grow up adopted of a different race. And I'm, and unfortunately or unfortunately, I have other friends who've gone through that the willingness for other people to talk about gave me the opportunity to sit in a meeting and find out how somebody else felt about it. You know, and when I got to this program, I couldn't name a fucking feeling, right? right? I mean, a couple of months in, I discovered I was angry. (laughs) Um, But after some number of years or even less time sitting in meetings and listening to other people name their feelings, I could sort of start to suddenly kind of figure out how I felt. And then you guys taught me, okay, here's how you feel. Maybe that's how I feel. Or maybe I just need to know that's how I make someone else feel, right? right? Like just learning how to navigate and listening to how, what Autumn went through gave me that understanding on how I treat people and then how my daughter may feel as well. But it all starts with us sitting all the way down in yeah. a chair and not being shiny. Right. And not acting like everything's okay. And I love the fact that when we go, and I need these kind of rules. Like I went to a meeting, I get my little three minutes, usually more than I share. <laughs> and um, and that's my turn. Right. And then everybody else gets a turn. And I had to learn how to let everybody have a chance to speak, you know, and not talk about what they just said. And so I had to sit there and learn how to be human um, and be, and then be okay with being human. And then actually feel pretty good about it and want to help someone else get to the place 
where they feel okay about it too. And they know they're not alone. What they feel isn't different. What they dream about isn't different. What they fear isn't different. All the stuff running around in their head doesn't make them terminally unique. It just makes them human. Right. And we have the gift of desperation, which we talk about as well, right? Where I got to figure that out. You know, I would have just off myself without, but for being, because I was there before I ever took a drink, right? But for the need for this program, I found out I wasn't different. Just another person. Um, chattier. <laughs> um, I interrupt more. Um, <laughs> full of opinions. Um, but really okay with just being another person right. and having a good time while I'm doing it. Absolutely. Without half an hour of friendships. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's so beautiful. I mean, <laughs> the fact that we have a place to go when we don't feel the best. Like for me, you know, I, the vast majority of days in sobriety are relatively happy, if not tipping the scales of being really, really good. Right. But I do have, everyone has bad days. We all have bad days, but mm -hmm. what's, what's different is because I hit that wall and had that gift of desperation and, and didn't have any other options. Um, I, I was able to sit down and, and now I have a place where I can, I can go and, you know, my, my pride and ego may, you know, make me try to appear as though there's nothing going on or I'm not having a hard time or whatever. But when, if I strip that away and I'm, I'm, I'm able to do that in a meeting and when I strip that away and, and I can just be present with other people that have been where I'm at, there's, there's a, a just a, a wonderful sense of relief that comes over me. And, and I've never left a meeting where I felt worse than when I first got there, you know, and it's just, it's such, it's such a beautiful thing. Um, I, I, we could go on and on and, and I don't want to take too much of you guys time. And I just want to say again, um, thank you so much, Cal and Autumn for, for joining me. Uh, and doing this with me, Autumn. I know I, I reached out last minute, and you you stepped in, and go Autumn, and you, you know, I'm like, what? <laughs> fucking killed it, and um, and I, and I'm unbelievably grateful to you for doing that. And Cal, thank you so much for coming on. All right, we're gonna end with the uh, with our intro music, and if y'all will just stick around for just a second, and uh, thank you everyone for listening. Um, again. Uh, Let's see. What am I forgetting? Am I forgetting anything? Uh, I don't think I'm forgetting anything. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, this is Recovery Lab. Have a great night. <laughs>